You know, we talk a lot about leadership and community policing and uh, so many things here at the National Police Association. So I wanted to bring in a guest today who can really speak to so many of those issues uh, from a really, really legitimate uh, perspective. Uh, he's a fellow retired cop. He's a fellow Midwesterner. And uh, I am so excited for you to meet Chief Mike Koval. Chief, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. Thank you so much, Betsy. And, I, and you know, we are both regaling one another with our Midwestern roots. You had the, the smart uh, sensibilities to leave uh, Siberia when it gets cold. So I still have to work on that. <laughs> yeah, Wisconsin is uh, going to be pretty chilly this oh, winter, yeah. and uh, you really you need to visit Arizona, Chief. I'm just, <laughs> I I'm might just have saying. to. <laughs> I do have to do that. So, Chief, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the same question I ask every guest who is a cop or a retired cop on my show, because you've been asked this question a million times. Why'd you become a cop? Well, I really do think that it's uh, oh so cliched, but I had some role models in my life. My uncle and godfather, two roles in one title. He was a Madison police officer who subsequently migrated to the Department of Criminal Investigation here in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, and he was the total package to me, uh, a role model, uh, someone who was extremely caring and compassionate and empathetic toward others. And with that kind of a role model in your life, you kind of aspire to see, well, what is it that makes him tick? And he was always good about um, leading by example and showing me as a young student, if you will, of how to comport yourself as an adult. What are the kinds of things that go into it? And for inter interestingly enough, he did everything in his power to dissuade me from be going into policing. And I think it's because he thought that, you know, since he had a ringside seat on the worst of what humanity could offer, you're always dealing with the saddest and the baddest and the maddest of what society has to offer. That I think he wanted to spare me to some extent or shelter me, cloister me from those kinds of issues. But ultimately, he realized I, I couldn't be denied and uh, wanted to ultimately follow in his footsteps. So I think that's the reason I had the sort of the genesis or the seed that was planted. So you worked your way up internally to become chief, which is kind of unusual, especially for a mid-sized police department. Talk to me about how that happened. Well, there was a couple of things that go that went on, I think, that helped my particular um, ascendancy, if you will, uh, to the chief's role. Uh, I started out as a police officer, and one of the things that I had also been interested in through my life was the FBI. So while going to law school nights, I got my law degree, ended up serving as uh, a a special agent when I was hired by the FBI, because at that time, middle 70s, late 70s, uh, their biggest uh, 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 target audiences, if you will, for hires were accountants, lawyers, uh, and language of the month sort of thing, among other things. And they had a lot of people who came into the behavior or modified program with prior law enforcement experience. So I think it was with the prior law enforcement experience, working in Madison, working nights downtown, 
coupled with my law degree that got me into Quantico and from Quantico after being trained as a special agent, Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I was assigned to reactive crimes and crimes on Indian reservations. But ultimately, that which got me in also sort of chased me out because my next assignment would have been legal affairs in Washington, D.C. for the next 10 years. And, you know, if I'd never had an opportunity to have savored what it's like to be a a cop at a grassroots level in an urban setting, uh, I probably would have had no basis of which to, uh, to compare it to and would have been a lifer with the Bureau. But because I had tasted that and could see what community policing could look like at a grassroots level, uh, I reapplied for policing jobs, got a conditional job offer from Minneapolis and was testing with San Diego, when then the police chief of Madison, David Cooper at the time, uh, he said, why am I fielding these calls from backgrounders? You can come home. You haven't gone scorched earth or burned any bridges. So I came back, ultimately was promoted to sergeant, worked all the various assignments that one could assume, and particularly loved patrol services. Because at the end of the day, I believe that while we have many ancillary and complementary services throughout most major departments, uh, impressions are won and lost at the level of those encounters that occur in patrol. And those are where we can really make some great impressions, lasting good or bad, which is why it's so important those folks that are in the trenches remain on the cutting edge of our support, of our training, and, and our defense. And so with that in mind, I had been a patrol supervisor for a number of years, ultimately got reassigned to training, and I taught criminal law and procedure at our academy and was the day-to-day daily practitioner running over all of our academy work. And then we had a change at the top. And you have to remember, I was a sergeant. And so I was competing against chiefs and captains from throughout the country. So it was rather remarkable that I went from sergeant to chief of police in Madison, which uh, initially provided me some opportunities to see how was I going to turn a management team, some of which who had applied for the very position I was in, into understanding that we were all having to row at the same time at the same synchronization in order to better the department's output and continue to foster our relationships with our community. For people who aren't familiar with uh, Madison, it, it, it it's very often... Um called the Berkeley of the Midwest, you know, oh, you've got University of Wisconsin, Madison. Um, and again, you've got, you have the state capital there. And if there's going to be any kind of protest, um, you're going to be dealing with that, which of course you did I, during your entire tenure. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I, and I want to talk about that because, you know, it, as the chief, you have to stay pretty apolitical and so do your people. You know, nowadays, everything, it's all politics all the time. Um, cops standing on a riot line or a protest line or uh, whatever, you know, they don't take a side, right? Your job is just to keep people safe. How did you manage that uh, as the chief? Well, it was difficult, but uh, it took its roots as, again, as patrol sergeant. I remember at the time uh, I was assigned with a bunch of officers because there was a, a controversial movie debuting in Madison 
that depicted the presence or relationship of gay and lesbians in elementary schools, their pervasive influence or lack thereof, but anyway, it was contentious. And so that night when it debuted at a local cinema, uh, you had sort of a group that was pro and anti, and then it became pro-life and pro-choice. And so sort of maintaining that understanding that the public sidewalks are a thoroughfare so long as they're not obstructed and as long as people can move ingress and egress and come and go as you will, we are literally the front line of constitutional officers. We've taken an oath and we have to be the arbiters to ensure that everyone's First Amendment rights of assembly and speech are protected. Well, the next day, I got called into our internal affairs professional standards and he said, and the lieutenant at the time said, boy, Sergeant, you, you really generated a lot of complaints. There were this many complaints on one side and this many complaints on the other side. What have you got to say for yourself? And I paused and I said, I think we got it just right. Because they're both unhappy that the police did not curry favor with their side or another. And the number of complaints on both sides of the aisle would suggest that we did walk that tightrope and that balancing. So to your point as chief, though, is that I can we we had protests daily. Now, we're just back through it. I'm sure that they probably had a protest about changing uh, set central savings time. We protest everything in Madison. Nothing is beyond the pale. So you get to be pretty good at it. And so you decide to say, OK, how can we facilitate our role as constitutional officers of the court, while not also encroaching upon the ability of traffic to move uh, throughout our city expeditiously. So you, you pick your spots. You know, when you, when you talk about training, um, again, one of the things that uh, Madison is known for is a, just an amazing police academy, a beautiful police academy, fantastic, um, very modern, training programs. You're also yeah. uh, known for your community policing programs. And one of the most successful programs that you had as chief was your citizen police academy. Um, yes. Can you, can you explain to people, ex you know, exactly what that is and why yours was so successful? Yeah, well, we would try to uh, identify, we'd open it up for members of the community but then, frankly, also, there'd be a little bit of lobbying on my part to try to get elected officials, members of the media, people who wrote opinion pieces or whatever, influencers, if you will, to try to attend a 12-week, it would meet Wednesdays for three hours, and every section would be covered with a different thing. One might be criminal law and procedure. Another one might be discussing crowd control. Another one might be how we engage in community policing initiatives. And at each and every element, we would open it up. I'd bring in subject matter experts in whatever field we were discussing that day. And the key was not to be sort of this uh, glossy propagandized, look how great we are, but to have a frank conversation, a transparent one to say, here's the lessons we have learned. And here's our attempts to be transparent. And here are our attempts to be accountable. But moreover, do you understand how at times these narratives are really urban myths that have been launched about 
the police or in particular the Madison police. And here's an opportunity for me to set the record somewhat straight or at least give our perspective that heretofore hasn't been done. And I thought the community policing uh, things, particularly when you go hands on and give them some opportunity to do some deadly and non-deadly force decision making, where when they walk a mile in our shoes and understand that the decision making that has to happen in dynamic scenarios involving milliseconds, I think that gives them a healthier or more profound understanding of, boy, these decisions are made at the speed of light. Perhaps we should tap the brakes lest we uh, rush to judgment. Now that you're retired and you look at how things uh, are in, in the world of policing, you know, we've had three and a half years of the, you know, post defund the police movement, post George Floyd, post 2020 riots, post um, Ferguson, post Ferguson. I mean, so much that has happened in the last nine years in this profession. Um what do you see happening with our difficulty in law enforcement recruiting new officers and retaining uh, current officers? Well, I think it's our, our challenges are Herculean, to be perfectly blunt. I think it's going to have to require us to somehow shift radically the paradigm, the central narrative that the police are basically an occupying army of mercenaries and are not our friends, are not our advocates, and are not there to champion uh, our needs. And of course, you and I know that nothing, but nothing could be further from the truth, but it's going to require an affirmative and intentional response, particularly on the part of police leadership, not to constantly acquiesce, appease, or kowtow to narratives that, as leaders, we know to be false. And we have the data to be able to refute it. And we have to explain and uh, be passionate about how some of the narratives that are being advanced are simply not true and wholly erroneous. And I'm also going to say is that if we, unless we change that narrative and unless we get social influencers in the media and politicians to understand that if they don't help us to flip this story as it's currently trajecting, then we are going to have from a very self-serving standpoint, you're going to get predictably what you get in terms of the quality of those applicants or the lack of applicants. And I think that's in everybody's best interest. I hear everybody wants, and so do I, we want to have a diverse workforce and the diversity reflects the composition of the communities in which we serve. Well, on the same hand, if that's in fact an attractive proposition, which I subscribe to, then how do you expect us to do that when all of the diatribes and narratives are so manifestly negative why would someone from a marginalized community, uh, a, a minority stakeholder, want to join something that is getting such horrible press and be part of an infrastructure of systemic prejudice and things like that? I don't, of course, believe that we contributed to that. 
I think if it is happening, it might be happening almost on a subliminal level. But I think that uh, leadership and departments that I'm aware of are trying in great earnest to show affirmatively how we are not part of that narrative. And please don't judge us like that. Do you think that, you know, as we see crime continue to rise, you know, especially in, in uh, you know, certain areas of the country, certain cities, do you think the public is is on to the fact that law enforcement's not the problem, uh, you know, and we're not the ones attacking their communities and we're not the ones that are causing crime to rise? Do you how how optimistic are you that people get it? I actually believe and maybe I'm rationalizing something to myself or maybe i'm minimizing fine line i i actually believe that in fact there is a silent majority of people that believe in the police support the police but are afraid to stand up in a public forum or in a social media platform because they are still afraid of the fact that they're going to be the subject of scorn, that they're going to be marginalized, that there might be a ripple effect or implications on their home life, on their work life, who associates with them, and even how it affects their offspring. So I think most people just want a better life for their family. They want their kids to do better than they did. They want to just go to work, come home from work, relax a little bit before they have to repeat the cycle again. And they don't have the time, the effort, and maybe in times the courage to be a political activist in behalf of right now a team that is losing and it's in the fourth quarter. And they don't want to be associated or tagged with something that looks like the maiden voyage of the Titanic. I would love to support, and I have a lot of people, when I was chief, I'd walk in all these community events, I'd have people look left, look right, come up and whisper, we're backing you, chief, just keep talking. I'm like, why are we whispering? Could you tell a few other people? Mm -hmm. And that's the problem, is that there is that part of, of, of the silent majority that wants to support and does support, but you know what that silent majority is doing in a lot of these urban centers that you just referred to? Those who can, who have the resources, who have the capacity, they're moving. They're leaving these urban centers. Or at minimum, they're taking the kids out of the public schools where perhaps the rhetoric is the hottest. And they're homeschooling. They're going to parochial or private school options. They're doing what they can incrementally to sort of isolate and push that distraction. It's not just the police in some of these settings uh, where the crime is greatest, although in the urban centers, it clearly is. But I think so many people have grown weary of the political implications of how the police have been marginalized. Uh, Educational resource officers, school resource officers have been taken out of the schools because they're a part of systemic racism again. I mean, everybody gets tired of the mantra. And so rather than try to feel like you're trying to push a a peanut up Mount Kilimanjaro, they're just saying, 
okay, what can I do, me, myself, and I, and my family? Well, I can go to private school, or I can, and I can work a second job to pay for it, or we can move to the suburbs, or we can move to a community or a state or a city that is less uh, draconian in terms of its attitudes about police and crime. And the other thing is, is that I think uh, too often the police, because we're the most uh, visible elements of statutory authority of the power to restrict people's movements, the power to arrest, the power to at sometimes use lethal force in defense of others, because we're the most visible elephant in the room, we haven't spent enough time in redirecting and sharing collaboration with what about the fact that we have judges who do not believe in setting bail? Or what about those states who have spoken legislatively for little or no bail? Or what about those DAs that are basically not prosecuting certain areas where now our quality of life is affected? And what about sentencing? And what about incarceration? There is a, an, an entire spectrum that is the criminal justice system. And unfortunately, we're the most uh, picked on, if you will, about a lot of these issues when I think that just as much uh, attention could be given to those complementary pieces that heretofore has not been as rigorous. Yeah, yeah, I, again, incredibly well said. Chief, I know you're enjoying retirement, but we sure hope you're not done with law enforcement because we need the experience and the wisdom uh, that you just displayed. And we can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain